This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 1987, and a beautiful princess Oh, wait a second. Is this going to be a kissing story? Yes. The movie, The Princess Bride. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where we are trying to find the 100 best films of all time. We have a long way to go. But you know what, Amy? When we find that 100, we are going to blast them off into outer space. That is a promise. And today marks a very sad day because we are breaking up with our miniseries. That's right. We've been in this miniseries for many weeks Couple goals. We've seen so many couples, and today is the last episode. We are leaving couple goals behind, but not before you get your voice in with the Princess Bride. Uh, what a great way to end our couple goals series! I know we're basically ending it right where we began with another Rob Reiner '80s classic, right? We started wow, our think about series that. Yeah. with When Harry Met Sally, and then we were like. Hey, what do you guys think? We should definitely include in like another Rob Reiner. Duh, he did the best ones. It's interesting to see how Princess Bride really has like never gone away. I remember seeing it in the theater when I was a kid, kind of getting upset with it. Like, I don't like this anymore. And now it it really has taken on a life of its own. I mean, in this last year, you know, we saw Carrie Elway's write a book. We saw uh, live reads of it. We saw Jason Reitman recreate it for Quibi. You know, a lot of people come out of the woodwork, original stars, uh, tributes. This movie continues to be, I, I mean, I would say more influential than when Harry met Sally as far as in the pop culture landscape. Yeah, this is the movie that if I was going to say that a movie from our generation has done the same climb from like, oh, pretty good, but 
not appreciated in its day to ascension as a major pop culture's touchstone to have gone on the It's a Wonderful Life arc, this would probably be the one I would point to. I mean, it's hard to argue for anything else as as being more beloved, honestly. Yeah, like beloved is a great word because it really is like The Wizard of Oz. It's one of those films that kids can watch, parents can watch, single people can watch. There's something in it for everyone. And I realized that the first time I watched it with my kids over quarantine, just I was like, oh, I think they'll like this. It's funny and it's weird. And, you know, and they and they they loved it. Um, and there's so many re-releases of it. Um, but before we even get into that, I want to talk about last week's episode, which is Brokeback Mountain. Um, you know, I've been reading that Mark Harris, Mike Nichols book, and I, I love it. And uh, I reached this section of the book that talks about Mike Nichols directing The Birdcage. And, you know, it was really interesting based on our conversation last week and, and what he did there with that film um, and what it did in culture, you know, and it was it was very interesting to kind of uh, a companion piece to our conversation about, you know, how queer cinema had kind of been on the fringes. This brought it in, but it was also a film that really had um, not much queer participation, I guess, uh, you know, besides Nathan Lane. And and the book kind of breaks down this very interesting moment where uh Mike Nichols and Elaine May felt very strongly that like Robin Williams should use the F word uh, to describe uh, one of the characters. And Nathan Lane's like, I got to tell you, I don't feel super comfortable with it. And they talked about why that word would be problematic. And um, wow, that's a similar conversation when Hattie McDaniel brought up on uh, Gone with the Wind. It's like same yeah. struggles, same conversations. And and, you know, at a certain point, like Mike Nichols had said to him, like, well, like, I don't think it comes across that way. And Nathan Lane said, well, I, as the only F word on this movie, it does. And they let him shoot it in an opposite way. When the movie came out, it was, uh, the F word was in there. Uh, and, you know, this is an interesting point of view because I think in many respects, people really applauded uh, that this movie had two gay leads, that they did something, they were saying something about culture and society and it was and and you know uh, besides that moment uh Nichols and May who collaborated that's the kind of their reun- they reunited here they really tried to do it in a way that felt um as cognizant to the themes that they could possibly get so it was interesting to see the reaction because I think some people are like we gotta applaud it just because it's so impressive that it's here and other people had a different reaction to it so Knowing that that's yeah. like kind of the first touchstone and then broke back is really the second kind of ma- like mass uh, or commercially successful film that's the next touchstone is really interesting to see those two as uh, as balance points. That is interesting. I would mean to go back a little bit reluctantly dragging my feet to see the bird cage. Yeah. I, mean, I remember exactly that emotion you're talking about of like, this is monumental, right? But is it? But I, I this is going to sound so silly and I don't know why I'm still really traumatized about this. But when I saw the birdcage in theaters, you know, it opens with We Are Family. And mm-hmm. it has, and like in my screening room, they had a te- technical glitch where at the end of the first reel, the movie kept going on the screen, but the audio rewound to the first reel and it started to play oh. We Are Family again. And I've always hated that song. I don't know why. I've just always, I really hate that song. I really hate the song. It just drives me nuts. Right. Every time it's on the radio, I can't listen to it. And to hear that song twice, I've, Every time I hear it again, I think of being in a theater. I think of being so frustrated. When I think of that movie, I think of how much I hate that song. Like, it's this maelstrom connected to a song that I think I hate for no reason. I just, 
hate it with this we deep all have toxicity. That. I will say something that I may have brought this up on the podcast before, but um, my ex-girlfriend was a film critic and she what? or yeah. I'm not your first film critic that you've known. <laughs> no, no. I mean, she was kind of a film critic. She was more of a um a I'll junket, be the judge of a, a junket she person. A she was a junket person, I should say. A junket person is different than a film critic. Um and Thank you for and, knowing that. Yes, of course. Uh and, and but we would go see films uh before they came out, you know, because you had to be prepared for the junket. And we went in to go see uh Requiem for a Dream. And that film. Oh, this was a long time ago. Yes. uh, The second reel replayed. Mm. And I was watching the film and knowing like, okay, Aronofsky is very, you know, look, I saw pie. I'm, I'm ready for anything. And when that second reel replayed, I was like, okay, what am I supposed to be getting from this? Uh, He's replaying a part (laughs) of the film. And, and I, and I got so into it. And 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 everyone in the in the theater wasn't reacting, and and we all watch it, and that experience of like the real misfiring in the middle of the first time I ever saw that film. Not that I'm like going to go back and watch Requiem a million times, but it put such a sour taste in my mouth because it was like a really horrific section of the film that I was rewatching, and I was like, it was too hard for me. But I have such a negative connotation to like a real to real mess up <laughs> that I'm like, oh, I never want to see it again. I, that, that caused me too much distress. It's like my brain just like short circuited on that movie. And I and I I can't even really talk about that movie only because I don't know what it did to me, but it really warped me. Uh, so I, I sympathize with having a visceral reaction to a, a to a projectionist misfire. I mean, can I say as the current film critic that, you know, yes, I'm incredibly touched that your interior psychology was just to roll with it and try to figure it out that you weren't immediately like that's wrong i here in the audience know better than everything that you oh, really no. tried to lend yourself to whatever you thought he might be saying by repeating those scenes you really rolled with it oh that, yeah that's a great temperament that you have i really value that oh i really appreciate that i will say this uh i think it's the reason why i like magic so much i'm so content not to understand or ask how it happens like mm-hmm. like airplanes and boats well like here's the thing <laughs> like, I mean, with magic, and by the way, if you've not seen in and of itself, check it out on Hulu. I saw it live twice. It's amazing. And the oh, that adaptation. Really me out. I think that guy's terrifying. Derek Del Guardo? I don't like him. Wow. Oh, I had such a visceral reaction to him when that documentary. I was like, no, I don't trust you. I wait, wait. You the all. documentary? I mean, his live show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched it and I was like, wow. this guy is a creepy ass cult leader. I can't handle it. Wow. He does do a little schmacting at points, but I really, uh, but I, I liked it. Um, but that being said, with all great magic, um, I understand they are not witches. They are not warlocks. Um, <laughs> and there is some sort of trick. So like for me to go like, I know there's a trick, like, yeah, no shit. There's a trick. Like, but what, like, that's not why I'm here. I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm caught up in the moment. I, I really can enjoy it. Now, I'll think about it maybe and go, oh, I wonder how, but I have no, like, no itch that needs to be scratched to find out how anything is done. No. Only because, yeah, I like it. It's more fun that way. And I feel like we're, like, super off track now, but I'm now thinking I would like to live through this world, through the experience of everything that we discovered, as though I am the mom on Arrested Development who's just always shocked that Gene Parmesan has revealed himself. Like, that's just the greatest way to live. I I would love to have my 
my interior spirit animal be her joy at seeing Jean Parmesan and a little bit of Bobby Hill. Because I just think Bobby Hill puts his heart into everything from King yes, of the Hill. And I, like I love that. Bobby Hill's approach. Bobby Hill's never tries to outsmart stuff, He but he appreciates values. He's not a dummy. He tries. Yeah. Well, actually, I think that this conversation we're talking about, this idea of like wanting to accept magic, wanting to be open-eyed, to kind of revert back to our childlike self is very much appropriate to the princess bride. Like it is a story being told to a child. And I think everyone that watches the movie becomes the listener of this story. And, 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 and we want to transport ourselves back there and we, we fall victim to this magic. So, uh, I think that we actually inadvertently found ourselves right at a perfect place to, as Andre the Giant might say, Unspulet. Cowabunga, dude! The year is 1987. Ronald Reagan insists that, Mr. Gorbachev, you must tear down this wall. International stock markets crash resulting in Black Monday returning to showtime later in this year. Uh, the Prime Minister of France approves plans for Disneyland Paris, which I've been to. It's lovely. Uh, oh, this is Square, really all about you today. Huh? It really is. Square releases their first Final Fantasy video game for the NES in Japan. Never played it, never liked it. In TV <laughs> history, The Simpsons appear as a clip on The Tracy Ullman Show. Fox Broadcasting Company makes its primetime debut. And Full House debuts on ABC. All right, cut it out. And today's hot films of this time are, of course, a film we already did here on the podcast, Raising Arizona, Fatal Attraction, RoboCop, a film that we should be doing on this podcast, and today's topic, The Princess Bride. Amy, who's in it? Who's responsible for it? Tell me more. I will tell you. We have already talked about how this is by Rob Reiner. This came out actually two years before When Harry Met Sally. Paving the path for the romantic comedies to come. Uh, The writer here is also a name that we know very well. It's the great William Goldman. Uh, We know him on the show already from our Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid episode, uh, from All the President's Men. The Princess Bride is, of course, radically different from those two kind of like macho films about Robert Redford saving the day. Um, I would call The Princess Bride an everything film. It's a love story, a buddy comedy. It's an adventure flick. And it's a meta commentary. On, you know, what audiences want in a movie, or at least what young boys claim that they want in a movie and maybe they don't want in a movie. And in an era where I think young boys control the box office still, or the idea is that they do, I think it's an interesting framework. Um, The boy, of course, here is Fred Savage, crush of my entire childhood life. Um, His grandfather and narrator is Peter Falk. And the story itself that Peter Falk is telling him is about the great true love of Buttercup and Wesley, who are played by Robin Wright and Carrie Elways. Uh, They've been separated for five years at the beginning of this movie. They reunite just in time for her to get kidnapped by three mercenaries and then forcibly married to the evil Prince Humperdinck. We've got everybody in here. We've got Wallace Shawn, Mandy Patinkin, Andre the Giant, Billy Crystal, Carol Kane, Chris Sarandon, Christopher Guest, all doing some of the most memorable work of their entire careers. So let's take a listen. Why do you do this? Because you had love in your hands and you gave it up. But they would have killed Wesley if I hadn't done it. Your true love lives and you marry another. True love saved her in the fire swamp and she treated it like garbage. And that's what she is, the queen of refuse. So bow down to her if you want. Bow to her. Bow to the queen of slime, the queen of filth, the queen of putrescence. Boo! Boo! Rubbish! Filth! 
slime muck. Now, The Princess Bride debuted on October 9th, 1987. And when you take that and rewind it back, the top hit on the Billboard charts, I believe, really is the perfect accompaniment for Wesley's lonely five years, his quest to find and reclaim his buttercup. It is by Whitesnake, and it's called Here I Go Again. Love that song. Feel like that is like a song that was very much a part of my life. 1987 is a sweet spot for me as far as being like a culturally aware kid. You know, it's like I had my Nintendo. I had my LL Cool J. You know, there was things that were going on. It was like coming into my own at this point. So you were like at the peak hip. I mean, you know, it's like I think that moment where you start to figure out. I was about like... 10 years old, like where you start to figure out like what you like versus what people are serving up to you. Oh, that makes yeah. Sense. Yeah. Not just like I'm a kid, so I'm going to play along and say that I like this thing because I guess every other kid does. But who am I? Who am yeah, I? As a yeah. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, I like that a lot. And this is a big year. 87 is a big year. It's interesting that this movie is before When Harry Met Sally because, you know, Rob Reiner to do these two films, like I, when you just said it, I'm like, oh my gosh, like it seems very odd because Rob Reiner seems to create a type of film. Like I would say that Misery and Harry Met Sally fit better together than Princess Bride and Misery or Princess Bride and Harry Met Sally, if that makes sense. It's like, this is a, this is a kind of a bigger swing for him. Yeah. You know, by coincidence, I weirdly watched Misery this weekend because of course oh, wow. I'm writing a book and I'm in eternal pain and torment. Mm-hmm. And I thought Misery would be like a feel-good film. Oh, and nice. the one thing that also popped out of me is in all of Rob Reiner's movies from this period, somebody's eating a big bag of Cheetos. It's just this thing. There's always <laughs> like a big bag of Cheetos in the background. Um, but no, this is like, you cannot underestimate the dynamite run that Rob Reiner was on at this point. You know, that he's like really launching into. I mean, it starts with this is Spinal Tap. Then he does The Sure Thing. Then he does Stand By Me. Then he does The Princess Bride. Then he does When Harry Met Sally. Then he does Misery. And then he does A Few Good Men. I mean, it's just like, what on earth? Like, save and, some good movies for somebody else. Like, you're and by the way, all of them. I would say that, like, you know, North is the misstep, and that's after A Few Good Men. But then he follows that right up with American President, which, you know, a Sorkin, Michael Douglas, Annette Bening, great, fun film. Like, And I feel like that's, I would excuse North and put American president into that mix. Cause it really is like, that's a solid, a solid, solid run of films. But when you look at his body of work, he doesn't really do, uh, besides North, he doesn't really do like kid films and he does very grounded relationship movies. And to have a success like the princess bride, you're like, Oh, what? Like I'm almost enamored with the fact that he was able to, do what he did, which is When Harry Met Sally and Misery and A Few Good Men. Like, those three after it, all incredibly different. Um, 
really, yeah, really he's, interesting. He's almost one of those directors who I think his body of work helps counterbalance the emphasis we put on the arts or theory. I feel like we were talking about this a little bit with like Ron Howard, where I was trying to be mm-hmm. like, what is the essential Ron Howardness that Rob Reiner has? I suppose maybe like a bit of a, like the capper touch. He can take other people's scripts and make them amazing. Like he has a quality, I think in this stretch of of films that represents his talent, but you wouldn't say like you, you, you wouldn't watch them in the whole and come away with an essential Rob Reinerness, except for maybe the bag of Cheetos. And that's probably just because I really wanted Cheetos and I kept noticing them. I I always find that um, comedians have a really interesting sense when they tackle material like there's a there's a lightness and there's a uh, a realism mm-hmm. to all of these films when you put them together. Like there's a I guess a genuineness in the in the the dialogue. It like there he are heightened scenarios. Characters. Yeah, yeah, yes. like yeah. There even if the characters are heightened, you know, Annie Wilkes is incredibly heightened. Yeah. Although like now that I'm older and I feel like I can understand that type of person better. Like I, Annie Wilkes is even more interesting to me. Like you remember characters from all of these films. Like I don't even like, remember all the plots, but the characters are are vibrant and the casting. Really, maybe that's part of it too. The casting, like he cast the shit out of all these movies, from John Cusack to Tom Cruise. I mean, it's 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 all there. Yeah, you're exactly right. And it's kind of funny. Like he, one of the people he was kicking around for The Princess Bride would have been Meg Ryan before he gave it to Robin yeah. Wright. Like he was thinking about her. And the, you, you can imagine like a totally different Meg Ryan career track if she had been on this one. I think but, she's in exactly the right one. I think she's, yes. if you if you were going to ask me like who should be in which one, I want Robin Wright in this one because she has this, I mean, she looks like a tapestry with a unicorn on it. You know, it's just who absolutely. she looks like. Yes, and there's absolutely. something I think so modern about Meg Ryan. Yeah, I mean, he looked at like a bunch of different people. Like he looked at Whoopi Goldberg and Carrie Fisher and Courtney Cox and Uma Thurman. But you're right. The look of Robin Wright is really, is really, I think, what makes this this whole thing feel like a storybook. Like the whole movie feels like a storybook. And I was thinking about that, too. Like the way that Billy Crystal looks in this film. Like, you know, he has a lot of heavy makeup on. They're broad in their character strokes, like you would see in a tapestry. And everyone kind of like really, like he puts them all in the theme. No one feels like out of time. And I think that that's a really, again, just a a tip of the hat to the casting. It it makes you feel like you're here and it feels a little otherworldly. It doesn't feel like, you know, this is a 1980s movie. The hair doesn't feel like 80s hair. And then all of a sudden, you know, casual, you know, it's, it's really, I think, well thought out. There is like this timelessness to it, even though they're referring st- to stuff, they're referring to like Errol Flynn, you know, when they're trying mm-hmm. to get Carrie Elway's his look at that little, his hair flop, his little mustache. And yet he doesn't feel like he's in costume. It doesn't feel quite like you and we were watching Sophie's Choice and Kevin Klein is like gussied up. That feels yeah. more costumey than this does. Yeah. I feel like so many male actors get dressed up like they get dressed up like Errol Flynn and they pull it off or they don't. I mean, like, I think Carrie Elway's looks more modern being Errol Flynn here than he looks when he was being Errol Flynn in Robin Hood Men in Tights? Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder if part of it is the discovery of these people. Because at this point, Carrie Elways is not somebody that we know. Robin Wright's not somebody that we really know, right? So you Yeah, can come she's into on Santa it. Barbara. My grandpa liked it, but I, don't, yeah. I guess my grandpa knew who she was. But you're not looking at these people with a preconceived notion. And I think that sometimes you can paint a lot on that. That's what makes me so jealous sometimes about directors who can 
do that, who can cast the right person who's not famous yet. Because I feel like right now all films are just so dependent on getting the biggest name possible, whether or not they're right. And it's just such a bummer. It's such a bummer. We're not discovering new people or making the best possible film. But we get into this zone all the time where when you see something like Atlanta, right, and you look at that cast besides Donald Glover, everyone's like, I want to work with Lakeith Stanfield. I want to work with all these people because they are so we're so excited by them. Like when you saw The Hangover, like, who are these people? And yes, people knew Zach and people knew Ed, but it was like, no, I feel like these are our new movies to Bradley Cooper. Like, these are our new movie stars. And there is something about giving people who have worked or giving people center stage to make the audience feel like they discover them too, because they're actually able to look at the film for the film's sake, fall in love with the character and not like look at it as Bruce Willis in this. I mean, in many respects, it's like even the people he cast in this film, while famous and known, like Christopher Guest, you know, he's great in this, but he's not like, you know, everyone's a little bit made up to look a little bit differently. And even... Um, yeah, Christopher Guest has like Nancy Reagan hair. I love his look in this. It's so good. <laughs> he has the most but, calm, broad forehead. I just want to rub it. It's like a little egg. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're really, you know, Wallace Shawn. And, and I think, you know, originally it was supposed to be Danny DeVito, but then he fell out and then Wallace Shawn came in. But could you picture this movie without Wallace Shawn? I mean, he's, he is one of, one of the best uh, parts of this whole film. I mean, it's almost surprising to go back and realize Wallace Shawn has maybe 10 minutes of screen time, 15 minutes of screen time. And yet he tends to be the number one thing I think of when I think of this movie. You know, Carrie Elways, he had done a movie right before this where people were like, you have, I think, a good look for this. We're looking at you. It was a film I've never seen called Lady Jane. I don't know if you've heard of it. No. I think it's some kind of erotic, bodice, rippery period drama that's like him and a very young um, Helena Bonham Carter. So I'm sure it's absolutely great. But like... Just a few years before that, I mean, he was such a nobody that he was, I love this, he was the personal PA for Marlon Brando on a film set. Wow. Yeah. I want you to hear this story. Um, He's talking to two radio DJs. So there's a lot of like the ha ha radio DJ sound. But yeah, listen to this. Uh, I had the opportunity when I was a kid, I was a PA. Um, I worked on, on Octopussy and then a PA fell out on Superman. So I did about a week on Superman as a PA. The original, the first one. first one. Yeah. My wow. job was to get Marlon. They gave me Marlon as my first job. Oh, my God. <laughs> get Marlon out of the trailer, you know? <laughs> like, okay, you know? So I knock on the door and I come in. <laughs> I go inside and I go, hi, Mr. Brandon. My name is Carrie Always. I'm the new PA. With what? I said, my name is Carrie. He goes, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, really? He goes, no, it's Rocky. Your name's Rocky. And I said, okay, what are you going to say to right. Marlon Brown? Right. Right. You're wrong. Okay. <laughs> so from there on in, I was Rocky. And, uh, you know, my job was to, and I would come up to him and go, so they're ready for you, Mr. Brown. He goes, you know how to lie, don't you, Rocky? <laughs> I go, yes. He goes, well, just tell him I'm on my way. <laughs> Is that is a great, great impression. Yeah, that right? is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, his impressions are actually what got him this Princess Bride uh, job because, you know, the producers flew out to see him. He was actually on set making a movie in East Germany because, you know, the wall was still up. Mm-hmm. And he was making a movie in East Germany like 
a couple weeks after Chernobyl exploded. Wow. And so the producers like came to like meet him in person, do the audition because they knew he couldn't fly to them to do it. So they, they right. went to East Germany. They were so freaked out about Chernobyl radiation that um, apparently one of the Princess Bride producers ran from the taxi cab to the hotel so he wouldn't have to be outside. And he ran so fast, he forgot his $1,000 jacket in the taxi because he was just freaked out about Whoa. Chernobyl. And then Carrie Elways realized when he sat down with them, like, okay, they think I look like Errol Flynn, but they don't know that I'm funny. And this movie has to be funny. So he did right. a fat Albert impression and boom, that it was his fat Albert impression that nailed it. Wow. <laughs> so bizarre. <laughs> I want to hear that impression. You know, it's interesting, like all the the hoops that everyone had to jump through to make this movie in a way, because this is a film. And when I read this, that kind of blew my mind that like that Francis Truffaut at one point was attached to like this yeah. is a movie that, you know, um, that many people circled, uh, you know, Christopher Reeve wanted to play Wesley. Like, uh, you know, there was so... Richard Lester from A Hard Day's Night wanted to do it. I mean, like, I would everybody wanted too. to do it. Like, wow. Norman Jewison, who did Moonstruck, tried to do it. John Borman, who did Excalibur, tried to do it. Like, Robert Redford wanted to do it. And, you know, Robert Redford had an in with William Goldman. And Robert Redford was like, not only will I direct it if you let me direct it, I'll play Wesley. I could be Wesley, which he could be Wesley. He yeah, could totally absolutely. pull off being Wesley. And it was considered, I think unfillable. I mean, the book was published and the rights were purchased in 1973 and it took 14 years for it to be made because it was just so metatextual and like commenting on what was happening in the pages. And, and I remember I read the book when I was a kid and it was, it's really funny. And the, the book is really well written. It's, it's, uh, but the film really kind of does a straight and narrow version of it, which I think works. Yeah. And in the years since, I haven't read the later versions of it, but from what I've heard, the later versions of, of The Princess Bride, because William Goldman kept updating the novel, he would build mm. just more and more brackets around it, more and more air quotes. Then it would be by like the making of the movie, of the book, of the thing. Oh, of the wow. Book. And it just got insane. Um, I wonder if he's just going to keep it going forever, like one of those Russian nesting dolls. Wait, but so I what is he be, adding when he adds to the book? More story or just more stories about making the movie? Yeah, I think he's adding more stories about making the movie. And he starts tweaking with his own fake character. Because even the book itself is like a fake thing. He's, he pretends right. he discovers this book that's written by another man. Yeah. And he's like, I'm just going to show you the best parts of this other book that this other guy wrote. Um, but then he starts making himself, William Goldman, this fucked up character, I think. Where right. he starts talking about what a selfish jerk he is and how Hollywood he is and making fun of the Hollywood image that he might have, but doing it in a way where you can't tell what's real and what's fake. Like he goes on for a while talking about like how his son is fat and like it's stuff where you're like, what a jerk. But actually he doesn't even <laughs> have a son. He's just writing it in a really convincing manner right. where you're, he's making you hate him. So I guess you could say it's all about never trusting your narrator. Yeah. I, I mean, wow, I guess so. And and I th I think what really stood out to me last night for a, a film or an idea that is so hard to film is how simply it's filmed and how effective it still is in 2021, right? Like this movie doesn't feel dated. And I think that is the tricky needle to thread because I watched it last night and when he's attacked in the forest by the giant, um, 
you know, rat or, you know, with that, that, uh, yeah, you know, a rodent of unusual size. Yes. That it looks better than it would be if it was CGI. Like that knowledge of making it look a little bit more like it's on a set because the movie yeah, does it looks feel like very that. much like it's on a set. Yeah. There's the, know, a few giant open vistas, but otherwise it looks like it's got a little styrofoam castle. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I think it has a, a vibe to it. It's the anti Lord of the Rings. They're doing all these travels, but you know, it, it almost feels uh, as if I'm watching a sketch in the Muppet show. And I mean that in the, in the most sincere and great way, because I think that grounds it at any point. We know we are listening to a fairy tale. We're watching a fairy tale. It, it it forgives everything, but it also is not trying to be the slickest, best looking thing. I don't know how you approach films like this to make sure that they feel like that. Because I think of, and not to slander him at all, but when I think of somebody like um, Snyder, like who's doing the Snyder cut of Justice League, and it's going to be this and blah, 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 blah. Like those films won't age well. They just won't. Like 300 is not going to age. Like in 20, 10, 15 years, 300 is not going to look as cool as it looked when we first saw it. But I think, you know, uh, something like the Titanic still is really impressive. Like the effects don't go away. Yeah. That, the worst that, part of Titanic is the fanciest effects. The worst part of Titanic is when you're looking at the deck of the ship and all the yeah. little robot people look fake. You know, all the little right. like, animated people. It's when they try for modern technology that it doesn't work as well. Yeah, so I think there's something really when elevated about it. It's great. Yeah, somehow this film manages to be both self-referential in its construction, you know, opening with the thing. Here's a book. You're getting a book. Listen to this. You're watching a story that's based on this book that we're holding. A book? That's right. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. Is it got any sports in it? Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's very nice of you. Your vote of confidence is overwhelming. And yet, it never seems sarcastic about it. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't feel like it's patting itself on the back, like, look how clever we are to be doing this. You know, it. I don't know how they thread the needle and do it that sincerely well, to be both meta and sincere. I think by having the kid be the the person questioning it, it, it kind of allows us all to be the kid. It's like, shut up, kid. Listen, we got something mm-hmm. for you. Like, it's like what we were talking about earlier in the show. Like, don't question how the magic's done. Sit back and and see this for what I'm trying to do. And I think it's actually really smart they put Peter Falk in that kind of makeup when he comes in. You've been because, dying to talk about Columbo for months, man. Oh, my goodness. Get me <laughs> to it. But uh, Cookie's Fortune is what I'd like to talk about. Um <laughs> No one gets that reference. Uh, But by introducing him and making him look different, it almost sets the tone. Like, he is entering into this world that's very real. You got, you know, Fred Savage playing his Tecmo Bowl, whatever he's doing there. And the mom, everything is grounded. Yeah, what is he playing? I feel like I must have that on on a Nintendo emulator that I got during quarantine. Yeah, that's like the the worst, the old school baseball games. It's like, oh, 
the worst. I'm, I played so many of them. But um, you know, in but, early but, quarantine, I was playing NES fishing games because it was oh, just wow. so bad, and I never caught anything. But it made me feel like I was outside. This is like week three of quarantine. When Dreamcast, really Dreamcast, fishing with the Dreamcast wand was always the best. Um, yeah. but the kid but, is like the voice of cynicism, right? Yes. Like the kid is expressing all the cynicism in a really childish way where you forgive him. And his room is just so perfectly boy. Like I spent a lot of time this watch, like staring at his room, not just the Cheetos, but like you get a sense of this kid. Like he doesn't feel like generic insert kid here. You know, like he likes his race cars. He likes his Garfield book. I thought the Garfield book was a really good touch. And you know what kept catching my eye? Refrigerator Perry on the wall. Yeah. Over Peter Falk's shoulder as he's reading the story. Did you see that creepy ass Santa behind his back he's got like this construction paper santa that like has a monster face he's got i mean he looks like he's i don't know like he somebody put nacho cheese in his mouth and also blood and he's like drooling it out i'm looking at a, a screen grab of it right now and okay. uh yeah i see what you're saying okay yeah it's that pretty thing <laughs> i don't know i'm also just never never saw the cheetos until now either it's brutal can you tell I'm trying to, like, get healthy? It's awful. I'm really just <laughs> a sensitive to Cheetos. But you're putting Peter Falk, who's already heightened, and, you know, like his look is heightened. He's into doing this, like the like, grandpa things, shuffling, looking for stuff in his pockets, pinching yeah. cheeks. And I think, it, I think that, that that device serves to let us relax into this movie. You know, it, it kind of, without this device, I don't think the movie is as good. Um, because it's aware of itself. It's saying, look, we're going to tell you like a fairy tale. Like we're telling you a fairy tale. This is not real. This is an adventure. It's going to, you know, maybe not everything will connect. It's, but we are, we're in this world and these little, you know, the bookends that they have and the interruptions in the middle, I think really serve to keep our eye on the prize. Um, it allows the film to be aware of itself, like the William Goldman version, but different because it's actually more sincere because you can't make, I don't think you can make something that's just meta. Um, as someone who's done things that have been, you know, viewed as like parody or, you know, drafting off, you know, being inspired by something in, in pop culture, like you still have to complete, as slight as it is, you still have to complete the story. And I mean, one of the yeah. things that we always talked about on NTSF, like, like we're still going to give you a detective story like that you would see on a CSIR 24. We're going to get a beginning, middle and end. It may be ridiculous, but it, we're still going to pay off those beats. And that's what this does. It never undercuts the characters. It never undercuts the reality. Um, and it actually, you leave having a story that gives you an emotional payoff. And I think that's something that people have a hard time doing, too, is like doing something meta that also can still connect you to yeah, the characters. Because if, if it's all meta, then you're just making a big empty balloon. You know, why are you like, why are you here? Everybody gets patted on the back like, oh, I got your reference. But right. But where's the actual heart? And so I think there's all these little choices that are made right at the top. So we have we have a set. We have these characters. We have these faces that are famous, but not too famous. And I would say arguably like Billy Crystal, probably the most famous face you know, besides Andre the Giant, that is pretty covered up. So it, everyone's in in doing something. I mean, Carol Kane, also equally yeah. hilarious in this movie, and also thought she had a much bigger role. She's so tiny. She's got such yeah. a small little part. But, but everybody is so memorable. They feel big. I mean, Fred yeah. Savage hadn't even done Wonder Years when this came out. Like, he was a year short of doing Wonder Years and becoming, you know, child icon. 
But actually, I want to I want to like circle back before we move on to the yeah. rat scene that you were talking about. Yeah, because the rat scene also stuck out to me for two ways. I mean, one. Yeah. Like, I think the rat scene is great because there are times when you see that it's just a guy in a rat suit. Like it was like a four foot guy who was like apparently covered in tattoos in a rat suit doing the wrestling. Although the night before they were going to do that scene. The four foot stuntman who was covered in tattoos, who was going to wear the rat suit, that's 50 pounds, by the way, the rat, 50 uh-huh. pounds of rat suit, uh, went out drinking and got pulled over for a, a drinking while dr- drive. Yeah, DUI. A- and the cop like was like uh, listening to him and he was like, no, you can't put me in jail. You can't arrest me. I have a big scene tomorrow. I have to wear this rat costume. I have to wrestle somebody. And the cop was like, what are you talking about? And he put him in jail anyways because he thought he was lying. So the guy in the rat suit shows up to the set late. And that is why if it ever looks like Carrie Owens is wrestling like an empty rat suit, it's because the guy was still uh, getting out of jail for being drunk. Oh, that's brilliant. (laughs) And yet it still really works. And the second thing that really popped out to me, though, watching it is, you know, the the moment where Wesley kills the rat. You know, Mm -hmm. first he lights him on fire and then he stabs him three times. And up until this point in the movie, stuff's been pretty light, right? Like. Wallace Shawn dies of poison, but it's pretty simple. Like he just falls over and it's a little bit funny. But when the rat dies, you're watching your hero like stab an animal three times. It's kind of looking at at him like, don't do it. Please don't stab me. I'm just a rat. And I want to listen to the sound effects of it because it just astonished me how well that moment straddles both like terror and relief and lightness. I don't know how you do that, but that movement, that movement, it does it. I right. think maybe just because of the sound effects. I think if you are a kid, that moment is honestly a little shocking, you know, mm-hmm. and a little bit harsh. Like this movie is so good at going right up to the edge of what might cross the line. You know, right. it's just violent enough that a kid feels like they're getting a bit of a violent thrill. And it's just sexy enough that a kid is getting a little bit of that. Like it manages to cover the bases of like sad and tragic and loving and scary and violent without ever crossing it. You know, I'm that kid. I mean, when I see this movie, I'm that kid. I am Fred Savage's age. You know, I am. And and I felt like that. And I think the one of the things I rejected from this film at a certain point, too, was like, oh, I want to fast forward through like the romance stuff a little bit. But I like or I felt like. I loved it so much. Then I got into the zone where I didn't love it as much. And I wanted just to get to all those action things. And then I think I refound it again. But it was interesting. Like there was a point, though, where I could take it all in and not be, you know, because something like Star Wars, that doesn't really have those those moments, you know, like and it's like, well, that's what I want to watch. And this movie kind of lets you go in on the ride before you get a little bit too much. Like that's not for me, you know, and and I, I, I had the same journey. And it made me wonder. You speaking of those interruptions, like Buttercup and Wesley have that big fight and then they realize it's each other. And there's the, as you wish, like hill rolling down scene, which I don't understand how they did. Um, And then they're kissing and Fred Savage does interrupt it again, like right here. Well, you were dead. Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. I will never doubt again. There will never be a need. Oh, no. No, please. What is it? What's the matter? They're kissing again. Do we have to hear the kissing part? 
Someday you may not mind so much. Let's keep under the fire swamp. That sounded good. Oh. You're sick, I'll humor you. So now where were we? Wesley and Buttercup raced along the ravine floor. Ha! Your pig fiancé is too late. Now, here's what I want to ask you. You see Peter Falk skip a page. What do you think was on that page? Do you think it was like a full page of just like hardcore, like Buttercup Wesley action? Well, look, I, I have a lot of questions about how Peter Falk is reading that book because he talks about you know, Wesley as the stable boy, and we have this whole introduction to them. And when we cut back out, he's still on the first page about a paragraph in. So I'm like, wow, that paragraph must have been uh, pretty dense, or I I get, it has to be dense, because it can't be slight. That book is, uh, there's a lot there. Maybe Maybe the grandfather is making it all up. Oh, come on. Maybe he's making it all up. You're really gonna go there? I don't know. I mean, why? Why not? Why not? What? What? What harm? What harm would it be? Well, then that is one talented grandpa. Yeah, but don't. I mean, that's what we all did when we were kids. Or at least I feel like my parents and my, you know, my aunts and uncles would tell me like stories when you were, you know, sitting in bed. And maybe this is like the the, you know, what he was doing, just kind of, you know, going. Okay, I'm not gonna make that scary. I'm gonna skip over. I'm gonna. I'll I'll create it to what you want. I'll give you everything you want because I know my grandson so much. That's why he doesn't I mean, leave the book. I would prefer to imagine that he's skipping over some hardcore stuff. Okay. Like, just like, yeah. Some hardcore effing. But it is kind of funny. I was thinking in the beginning, I remember like Buttercup ordering around Wesley. Like he's kind of lower status than her in these early scenes. They look about the same socioeconomic status. She doesn't seem like richer than him in the way they're costumed. They're both well, living in like a tiny kind of hut. Like what, what's happening here? Yeah, I mean, not a hut. I mean, she clearly has a house. We don't see it. Like, he's out in the stable. She's riding a horse. I, I, I felt like she was a little bit more upper crusty than him. But he had a nice shirt on. Maybe they were, they treated their uh, their servants nicely. That's true. Maybe there was, like, universal basic income. I mean, but to get at the larger theme of this, too, because I think we can spend so much time talking about the performances and the casting and the story. But at the root of it, we're getting back to this simple idea of like what it is to fall in love and, and have this adventure with someone. And, you know, I was looking at this movie last night and going, wow, it, you know, it feels like Brokeback Mountain. It feels like Chunking Express. It feels like it feels like all these films. And what's different about it is the characters aren't jaded about love. The characters love love. I mean, when when they're reviving um, Carrie Elway's, you know, at, at Miracle Max's, you know, it's like, why do you want to live? And he's like, for true love. And and there is something about all these films that we just watched. Everyone knowing the pitfalls and almost being aware of the pitfalls. Like, we we ultimately live in a society like, all right, I'm getting involved. I hope it's okay. I hope this is good. Maybe it won't go well. But this is like such a unadulterated idea of like what love is and 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 the highs and lows that come with it like in the and the and the struggles i mean obviously they're painted out here as you know giant rats and being tortured with you know the uh, a machine that can take years off your life but there is i also feel like there's an analogy for falling in love and what we all do like we just go in so kind of head first a little bit yeah i mean love is talked about in this movie as an object 
you know, it, like it's right. spoken about as though it is like a physical diamond, like a rare diamond that you have found, which part of me would want to think I'd feel like too cynical about, you know, because I, I want to believe in the reality of like the day to day that love is not a noun. Love is an action. Right. You know, that like what even last week, you know, like what Heath and Jake have in Brokeback Mountain is the action of being together as much as they can and not like an externalized love. Like they can't they don't even really talk in terms of love. You know, and here you talk about a relationship as like we have this thing. We found the true love token and we must hold tight to the true love token and protect it. It, it, It's such a it's such a different way of discussing what the emotion is. Right. And yet what really affects me is actually in that kind of in that scene with Billy Crystal when Billy Crystal is like refusing to admit that he said true love, but he wants to think that he said too blave so he doesn't have to bring him back. And Carol Kane barges in and just the outrage in her voice that he would insult true love, the absolute outrage, I think is one of the most moving parts of the film. But that's not what he said. He distinctly said too blave. And as we all know, too blave means to bluff. Huh? So you're probably playing cards and he cheated. Liar! Which? I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. But after what you just said, I'm not even sure I want to be dead anymore. You never had it so good. To love. He said to love, Max. Don't say My another God. word, Valerie. He's afraid. Ever since Prince Humperdinck fired him, his confidence is shattered. Why'd you say that name? You promised me that you would never say that name. What? Humperdinck? Ah! Humperdinck! Ah! Humperdinck! Ah! Humperdinck! 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 I'm not listening! Love lies expiring, and you don't have the decency to say why you won't help. Nobody's hearing nothing. Humperdinck! Humperdinck! This is Buttercup's true love. If you heal him, he will stop Humperdinck's wedding. Shut up! I make him better, Humperdinck suffers? Humiliations galore. But yeah, I mean, doesn't I mean, am I am I sounding insane that they're talking about love in a different way than every other film here that well, we've done that, so far in the series has? These people are not jaded; they fell in love by like love at first sight, or you know, love around first sights, and then the whole goal was to just get with each other through you know, thick or thin. And there's something I like that we're ending on this one because it's it's at the root of what's most pure. And I, and I would argue that this is the audience choice because it's the most unfiltered version of it. Everyone can see themselves as someone who is chasing after someone that they love, someone who is fighting for it, someone who is waiting to be swept off their feet. Like we all are, I know it's like that joke, like we're waiting for our Prince Charming, but I think that that's not even a sexist thing to, to be. I think we all are waiting for our, prince or princess charm like we're all waiting for that person that we click with and that magic and and i think we're sometimes afraid to admit it because it feels stupid and it feels childish in a way but this movie is like no no this is why we're all here this is what we all want we all want this on some level it's not like we all want kids or we all want a house it's like we just want this relationship like this connection with another person it's 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 that's and there's no other obstacles besides beasts and uh and you know swordsmen and uh you know and uh you know and and gangs of uh the king's corrupt army like you know it's like there's no real world problems it's it's just or i should say there are only like physical obstacles no emotional mental societal obstacles yeah i mean once wesley gets over the fact that he thinks that she got over him too fast he's really mean in that scene when you know when he's like yelling at her I know who you are. Your cruelty reveals everything. You're the Dread Pirate Roberts. Admit it. With pride. 
What can I do for you? You can die slowly, cut into a thousand pieces. Hardly complimentary, Your Highness. Why lose your venom on me? You killed my love. It's possible. I kill a lot of people. Who was this love of yours? Another prince like this one? Ugly, rich, and scabby. No, a farm boy, poor. Poor and perfect. With eyes like the sea after a storm. On the high seas, your ship attacked. And the Dread Pirate Roberts never takes prisoners. I can't afford to make exceptions. I mean, once word leaks out that a pirate has gone soft, people begin to disobey you, and then it's nothing but work, work, work all the time. You mock my pain! Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. No, you're right. Like, this movie, I think, is is a defense or maybe a justification or, like, a permission slip to be earnest and to be vulnerable yes. and to, like, mm-hmm. trust in people. To, like, the way that she really trusts that he will come for her. She trusts that he will come back. And I think that's a hard, scary thing to do. And so this movie is, like, show your soft belly to people. And, I mean, of course, like, Carrie Always and Robin Wright being so beautiful you're just immediately on their side like there's not too much for as memorable as these characters are i wouldn't say that they're deep but they are perfect for where they are you know they i I don't know why i'm thinking of like nomad land for something but there's not like dimensions to robin right the way that they're like dimensions to what we would call like a complicated character right and yet i don't mind in this film because it's like we're not even really i think talking about that or dealing with that however i do want to ask you like who do you think gives the best performance in this movie and why is it Mandy Patinkin? Well, I, okay. Here's what I'll say to exactly your point. He is the only one that truly has a depth of character Mm -hmm. in this entire film. And that's not to say there aren't great performances and there aren't great characters like, but I don't know what, is going on in the mind of Vinzini. I don't know truly what's going on in the mind of Andre the Giant's character. And it's okay because they they really are, again, like the fairy tale. It's They are archetypes. We understand what they're doing. But Mandy Patinkin's character is the heart of the movie. And the same way that we're looking to Robin Wright Penn and Carrie Elwes and saying, like, they have this pure love. Like, he also has this pure love and and it's to avenge the death of his father right he's doing this out of love and respect for his father the man who killed his father must die and and there is a journey and there's an arc and he's the only truly the only character that i think hits more emotional obstacles than our two leads our our two leads don't really have emotional obstacles even when you know carrie always is is 50 years is taking off his life. He's brought to Miracle Max. He has the pill. He comes right back. And yes, his body takes a little while to get together. But is that it's because not... they gave it to him too fast? I was wondering that. Did they just cheat and they gave it to him within 15 seconds? And that's yeah. like 15 minutes. I, it takes I too think long? that, yeah. yeah. I mean, by the way, the physical humor that Carrie always does in that section is. Oh, I aces. Mean, the lolling, aces. the flopping, all I mean, the timing. And that's why I think an underrated performance from him also is in Hot Shots, especially mm-hmm. uh, he's great in that as well. But um, all this to say, Manny Potemkin, like we see him, we understand him. He's emotional. He is fighting for love. He's fighting for Carrie Elway's love. And we also see him at his lowest. Like we see that moment when he's drunk in that village. No other character kind of has that moment of gravitas, that like that bottom out moment. And then not only does he 
carry himself to victory, but he carry he makes the love work. Without him, he connects the dots. And maybe it's because someone who knows pain is trying to protect pain. I, I don't know. Yeah. There, no, he's but really he driving is, so much of the action. Like so much, so much of the action, and like. You know, what really popped to me in this watch is like this movie, I think, has two. It's operating kind of like on two moral code systems. Like one of them is true love, good, bad, you know, and you're like, yes, mm-hmm. it's good. I believe that. But the other one that I think it's really playing with is honor. You know, there's just people who have honor in this film and people who don't. And that seems to be the biggest difference. And like when Carrie always is chasing, you know, uh, when he's chasing uh, Mandy and when he's chasing Andre and when he's chasing um, Wallace Shawn, the first two fight him with honor. You know, they're like, I don't want to do this cheap. I'm going to let you know that I'm here. I'm going to wait till you're rested. Like, we are going to fight properly. And it's Wallace Shawn who cheats, you know? And it's the same thing again with Chris Sarandon. Like, he cheats. And so there's, like, cheaters and people with this code. And Mandy Patinkin's code, I just find so moving. You know, gentlemanly sword fighting, enjoying the art and the pleasure of it. You know, the craft for the sake of the craft. Right. And it's just endearing. Like, he's not some throwaway bad guy he he's just honorable in the way that he acts and that first sword fight they have by the way like it is long and it is fantastic i mean carrie always and mandy patinkin were like we, we want to have the greatest sword fight of all time and the sword fighters they got to train them had actually trained errol flynn so they're working with like and, the classics and worked on Star Wars as well. Not that that and worked is on Star Wars. Yeah, like I mean, they they yeah. these are you know some of the most uh, you know biggest sword fighting uh, films you could possibly have. Yeah, like for the Star Wars heads out there, um, Peter Diamond he plays the Tuscan Raider in the first uh, Star mm-hmm. Wars. He's um, he's one of the trainers, and the other trainer was Bob Anderson, who was Darth Vader's stunt double. Oh wow! And this they just have this. It's I mean it's beautiful to watch. It's like watching a tap dance scene from Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, you know, this, this sword fight that they do. They claim, I, apparently Carrie always claimed that the two of them watched every single sword fight ever filmed and that the greatest sword fight ever done is um, in a movie called Scaramouche with Stuart Granger and Mel uh, Ferrer, which I have never seen, but I suppose we should see it. If that is like the standard bearing yeah. sword fight, according to Carrie always the moment th- late in the film where you had this buildup of like Inigo Montoya. He's going to come across the six-fingered man and he's going to say those phrases and he does it. And then like Christopher Guest just runs away, you know, like everything you've yeah. been building up to like gets supplanted. And then he, Christopher Guest having like the dishonor of instead of sword fighting him in a proper duel, throwing a dagger at him and Inigo getting stabbed in the gut. I feel like I'm talking like an overexcited child right now because it's just awful. Like you have come to love him and then he's stabbed. And you might think for several minutes he's not going to make it out of it. And the way he builds his strength back up and sword fights him. I mean, the way like he synergizes like the emotions and his gestures and the snappiness of his movements and the power of his voice coming in. Oh, I just want to listen to it. Hold on. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that! Oh. Ah. Hello! My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed 
Offer me money. Yes. Power to promise me that. All that I have and more. Please. Offer me everything I ask for. Anything you want. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Okay, so then you agreed with me. Mandy, MVP, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Like, there's no, like, because he is the most three-dimensional character in a movie that is embracing two-dimensional characters. And uh, I also think his performance is, you know, I think it's a little bit bittersweet for him, too, because he talked about shooting this film after his dad died of uh, pancreatic cancer. And I think he was also bringing a little bit of that into it as well. But also from a writing standpoint, he had the most meat on the bone. Uh, he gets to do fun stuff. He gets to be... He is truly even more Errol Flynn than mm-hmm. Carrie Always. Like, Carrie Always may have the look, but he seems to have the plot of Errol Flynn. Like, they almost split the difference a little bit. Um, one is searching for love and one is searching for revenge. Yeah, he's fantastic. I mean, and, you know, Andre the Giant, let's talk about that for just just a beat. Again, inspired casting choice. This guy who is otherworldly looking. And as a kid, I loved Andre the Giant. You know, an incredibly... Um, physically troubled man like he just was not in good health and and his body was beaten badly i mean he yeah, he looked he so strong 540 pounds of weight you know 540 pounds on a seven foot force frame that your feet your your joints they can't do that they just can't yeah do that. and and you know so much so that like he couldn't really show any strength i mean in the film like even when buttercup falls down into his arm she's on wires like he can't he really can't do much uh, but be there. And Rob Reiner is like uh, reading his lines on a tape deck to be like, say it like this. And he just kind of uh, does it phonetically. But he speaks the image of him. And again, talking about two-dimensional characters. Like the image of him does so much work. You don't need that much. I mean, like the, him being lit on fire in the Holocaust cloak is great. And talking about like things that we suspend our disbelief on. Having a Holocaust cloak, you know, that kind of like, oh, yeah, I have it here in my my, my, <laughs> in my shirt. You know, there is so much fun there. And can you imagine hanging out with Andre on set? I mean, most of these actors talk about him just being like the fun time party guy. Yeah, just being like radiant. I mean, if anybody out there wants to hear wild stories, I really do love Carrie Owens' book about this, As You Wish. Like his Andre the Giant stories are crazy. Like Andre the Giant, because he was so big, he could metabolize endless amounts of alcohol. It's like he had an, an almost impossible yes. time getting drunk. So like he would go out to dinner and it would just be a normal thing that he would order three bottles of cognac, 12 bottles of wine, maybe get a little bit tipsy. But then when he got tired, it would just happen all at once, like all day. Like, not only did he keep, like, a flask of Kungunik in his costume, he would just do this thing where he had um, a drink called the American. And it's a huge pitcher of beer. And just all day, he would throw whatever dregs of booze he felt like into it. Like, he was making a jungle punch, but it would be, like, Merlot and vodka, whatever. And he would just drink from it. And then he'd have, like, a case of wine. And, like, when they would go out out, out at night to, like, try to eat at restaurants, an off-duty cop would follow them. Just because Andre the Giant had a history of getting so drunk that he would fall over and hurt people. Like he would just land on people. Yeah. So this cop was there to make sure he didn't land on people when he got drunk. Because when he fell over, it would just be such a disaster. Like as they were making the movie. How do you move him? Exactly. As they were making the movie, he passed out drunk in the hotel lobby. 
And the people working at the hotel couldn't move him. So they just put velvet ropes around him and told the maids not to vacuum. And they waited until he woke up. All right. Can I play a clip of Carrie Elway's talking about Andre drinking? Because it's we've just yeah. cheated up. So take a listen. And Andre the Giant, uh, did you ever actually get hurt when he was throwing you around? No, some of those he's very seems... gentle. He was a gentle giant. He yeah. really was. He was very gentle. Could, do you think he could drink? He could hang? Oh, my God, please. He'd have emptied this bar right away. He used to, he, he used to drink a thing called the American, and they would take a, a beer pitcher, and the bartender would go behind the bar and literally take every bottle and pour it into a beer pitcher, and, and that's, that's what he drank. I, I, I tasted it once. I, I've never tasted airplane fuel, but I imagine that was the closest thing. He thought it was very funny because I, <laughs> I coughed and spat it up. Okay, that's good. But could we talk about Carrie talking about Andre the Giant's flatulence? Because what? this is a thing in the book that Carrie Elways devotes three pages to describing what it's like when Andre the Giant farts around you. I actually found a clip of Carrie Elways trying to explain it on like, Kelly and Reaper or something. I don't know. Uh, this is him trying to talk about the fart. Right. And he lets out the most monumental fart. I mean, no, for real. Like, insane, like, deafening. We all still have tinnitus in one ear. Right. And the whole plywood set was shaking. Yeah. And just, for not, and the sound guy lifted his headphones off his ears and, like, was doing that. And it went on for, somebody timed it, it was 16 seconds, which is, which is not, yeah. A, a real real and it went up, it went, it had variations. <laughs> It was a symphony, if oh, you will. Oh, it was will. a symphony, Ryan. Yeah. And his face, I looked over him, made the mistake of looking over him, and he was like, had this beautiful smile. Like, <laughs> like and, a euphoric. And rocking right. to and fro like he was letting go of something he'd been holding on forever. Right. And, and, and there was steam coming out of the top of his head. I swear to God. This I, is why French people are so great. It's amazing. You know what I mean? And they thinking, live life to the fullest. And it's still going on, right? Living life, I mean, yeah. obviously lots of food that he'd eaten that day. And um, <laughs> something didn't disagree with it and and it just went on for 16 seconds and when it was over there was a stunned silence no birds tweeting nothing <laughs> well they nothing. had they had passed away <laughs> okay so as he says in that clip this particular fart that he gives three pages to lasted for 16 seconds and i was like what is 16 seconds i'd really like to feel what 16 seconds is and I thought we should all feel it. So I went looking for okay. a clip that was 16 seconds long. This is um, an instrument called the Titanic tuba. It's the biggest tuba in the world. So this is what 16 seconds sounds like. Do you feel like you understand, Paul? Because if you're not sure that you understand, here's another clip. This is 16 oh seconds of a sousaphone battle. So what do you think? Okay. Do you feel like you were there now? You feel like you were there, I Paul? do. I mean, that's pretty intense. It makes me want to read that Carrie Elway's book. Uh... And I mean, look, he's, it's iconic. He's an iconic personality. You put this guy in. And in many respects, I, I think that the most iconic face in this film is Andre the Giant. 
you know, around the world at this point um, for what he represented and, and how people knew him. How could you not? I mean, one yeah, of the he things was that wrestling he, everywhere, like Tokyo, everywhere. Like he was worldwide. And what he said he loved about this movie was no one looked at him weird. Like he loved it. He loved being on this film because he kind of fit in in this world. Um, yeah. And it's kind of heartbreaking thinking about like how much he usually felt out of place. You know, I think it was Chris Sarandon talked about the first time he took his daughters to the set, they saw Andre the Giant and they both screamed and ran away. And he tried to apologize. He's like, I'm so sorry. That's really embarrassing. And Andre the Giant was like, it happens. He's like, you know, the thing is kids either scream when they see me or they run right to me and they want a hug. But he had this way of knowing his effect on people and trying to disarm it. Like he called everybody boss almost as like a way of making himself smaller. He would calm people down by putting his hand on their head. Like if Robin Wright was cold on the set, he would just put his giant hand on her head like a hat and it would warm her up. Like all of the stories about him are just so sweet. If you want to hear a really weird Under the Giant fun fact, I just have to say this one. Okay. So like Under the Giant, you know, he grew up in France and his parents were both immigrants. I think they were from like Poland and Latvia, something like that. Um, But they lived in this little village that happened to be the same town in rural France where Samuel Beckett was from, you know, waiting for Godot. Yeah. And so as Under the Giant was trying to go to school, he outgrew the bus. Like he couldn't get on the school bus anymore. So Samuel Beckett would drive Andre the Giant to school because he had a convertible. Can you imagine Samuel Beckett? This is crazy. This is a true story. And he told Carrie always this on the set. And Carrie's like, what did you even talk about with like Nobel Prize winning playwright Samuel Beckett? And Andre the Giant was like, we talked about cricket. Of course. Look, this is, you know, he was an interesting guy. Like if you do some like deep digging on him, he was a... You know, he wasn't just like a brute, but I think it's so hard to disassociate someone that large from, you think, oh, he's just like a a full meathead who basically mixes all liquor until he's drunk. But he was also mixing all that liquor because he has pain and there's so uh, so much. I mean, imagine if you couldn't get drunk. I can get wasted off of one whiskey. Like, what if you couldn't get drunk? If you can't get drunk, then there's no reason to drink. Like oh, I realized that too. Yeah. Like <laughs> I was, I, I was realizing that I was like the the amount that I was drinking during the the quarantine, which we're still in. I was like, I'm not even getting drunk, so why am I drinking anyway? Should I just not drink? And I was like, oh yeah, I guess so. I mean, what what am I getting from this? Nothing. Um, but then if I want to go drink, I'll drink, you know. But I mean, but if like just to have a glass of something, it's like it's not really cutting the edge for me. Like, um, but anyway, I don't know. No, I've just gotten such a lightweight in quarantine. Like when I was going yeah. out and eating like nachos with friends, I could handle two drinks. I've always been weak, but like yeah. now that it's just me, oh, I'm screwed. <laughs> well, I want to talk about one person you mentioned who I think doesn't get enough play, and that's uh, Chris Sarandon. And I think he holds the film together because he's a bad guy without being overtly mustache twirly. He carries himself in a, it's an interesting choice, right? Like I think the closest person to look at is another kind of successful meta fairy tale, which is Shrek, which I'm surprised we haven't even talked about yet. But I mean, there is, I think there's a lot of comparison between Shrek and this film as far as like, upending what a fairy tale is, being aware of what a fairy tale is. And, mm, the and smash point. mouth on the soundtrack. Yes. I mean, Mark Knopfler is uh, is the smash mouth of, or I should say smash mouth is the Mark Knopfler of the uh, the 90s. But no, he's so good. And I think in a weird way, he gets swept under the carpet because 
I don't think he really has any memorable lines, but yet without him, this movie doesn't work, right? Like, this is a movie where we're truly, it's so patient and ready for jokes. Like, when they go into the marriage ceremony and the priest gets up there and the way the camera pans in, and then when you hear him open his mouth, marriage, it's like you're like, bam, it just kills. But he, Chris Sarandon, has to be the straight man in this film more than anybody else. Because even Carrie Elway's, he's not a straight man. He's... He is the leading man, which is yeah. a different thing than a straight man. And, uh, and he gets and he his is flopping funny. comedy. Yeah, he gets his moments. Yeah. Um, but Chris Sarandon does not. But yet, he's quite, quite good. He is. Yeah. I mean, in the book, he's written to be, like, repellent. Mm-hmm. You know, he's written to be, like, I think if they say he's, like, got a barrel-shaped body and barrels for legs or something like that. And here, he's just kind of like a discount Ken doll. You know, like, yeah, mm-hmm. he's fine. Like, he's fine. And he's actually good at some things, right? Like he's good at tracking and haunting. Mm -hmm. Like he, I think, has kind of a sweet friendship with uh, Christopher Guest. Like as evil as he is, they're like, you should get some rest. How are you doing? Like they check in with each other. He's just a he's just a powerful man, right? Like he's he doesn't seem like an abuser. The only time that he really you see that anger is when he tries to kill. Wesley, like yeah. and he jacks it up there. Yeah, he wants. Well, yeah, he's like using Butterclip as like a false flag. And yeah, by the way, like now that I'm a little older and I understand a little bit more about like police systems and policing, yeah. like him having this like police force that he like uses and manipulates. It has a deeper resonance for me now. But that scene he has with Carrie always, I was kind of laughing this time, you know, the to the pain. Like, let's hear the to the pain monologue. To the death. No. To the pain. I don't think I'm quite familiar with that phrase. I'll explain, and I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. That may be the first time in my life a man has dared insult me. It won't be the last. To the pain means the first thing you lose will be your feet below the ankles. Then your hands at the wrists. Next, your nose. And then my tongue, I suppose. I killed you too quickly the last time. A mistake I don't mean to duplicate tonight. I wasn't finished. The next thing you lose will be your left eye, followed by your right. And then my ears, I understand. Let's get on with it. Wrong! Your ears you keep, and I'll tell you why. So that every shriek of every child at seeing your hideousness will be yours to cherish. Every babe that weeps at your approach, every woman who cries out, Dear God, what is that thing? will echo in your perfect ears. That is what the pain means. It means I leave you in anguish, wallowing in freakish misery forever. I think you're bluffing. It's possible, pig. I might be bluffing. Okay, can I tell you what I was thinking about when we got to the to the pain scene this time? I was thinking about the Saw franchise. Okay. Have you seen the Saw franchise? Like, okay, have you even seen the first Saw? Yes, okay. with Carrie Elways. With Carrie Elways, that's it. Yes, okay, Carrie yes, sorry. Elways is in a room. He's like handcuffed. He's got like a saw. And his choice is like, are you going to saw your leg off to escape? How much pain right. can you take? And I was thinking like, did that movie at all, ca- did Saw at all cast Carrie Elways because of this scene? Was there just something in the back of the makers of Saw's head where they thought Carrie always can withstand torture. They connected Carrie and torture because of the to the pain scene. Am I being insane? Um, You know what? Oh, wow. One of the most upsetting 
And I'm sure there are plenty others now after this. But one of the things that always really upset me was Harrison Ford in Empire Strikes Back when he's being tortured by Darth Vader. And it's 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 just you don't even see it, but like his body is going down onto all these like syringes or or glowing needles. Basically, Darth Vader leaves with like Lando or whoever he leaves with. And the door closes and all you hear in the background is like Han Solo like yelping and screaming in pain. And it's so like he's such a swashbuckler and he's such a, you know, hero to hear him like like crying out like a like a child is it, it always really affected me. And I think there's something about this, too. And, and like the because the device is so uh, bizarre. It's like a, it's like almost like a Batman, the TV series, uh, like villains device, you know, it's yeah. a water it was system inspired by something they were building actually for a James Bond movie they didn't use. Oh, wow. So it's such a crazy idea. And, it, I, and but you feel like what that must be. It's like water and it's the sound of it, like making your ears pop, that kind of a thing. But also and and there is something so violent about it. And even though it's goofy looking and the way that he is and when his body, you know, rise on that table like that yeah it gets you like i but like it's i remember that scene in the han solo scene being like two scenes where you're like i'm not used to seeing my heroes tortured now i think it's a different ball game i think probably you know i don't know if i don't know if in like the lego movie you know chris pratt's characters getting tortured but i mean but but i think it's a little bit more commonplace now uh as is the idea that you can be tortured in be fine. Like you get yeah. tortured and he's still the hero, blah, blah, blah. Like nothing. There's happens, something but that like, feels like they got hurt, right? It, yeah. feels like they feel, it feels worse. It feels like something happened. Yeah. Like that Carrie always actually dies. Mostly, mostly dies. Yeah. I love that. I, I, I respect it. And that scream. Are you strong enough to hear a little bit of that scream? Yeah, the, of course. The scream I can take of it. I can ultimate take it. suffering. So I think no man in a century will suffer as greatly as you will. Fisic, Fisic, listen. Do you hear? That is the sound of ultimate suffering. My heart made that sound when Ruben slaughtered my father. Carrie Owens actually did get really hurt in this movie a lot. Like the scene where Christopher Guest tries to knock him out with the sword, he actually hit him on the head. I and heard this. Carrie Owens unconscious. I mean, this movie sounds like it's pretty brutal. I think Carrie Owens, he also like broke his ankle, twisted his ankle, something really bad happened to his ankle. This is a movie where you feel like people are taking their lumps. I, I, cause it is, cause it is so simple too. It's on sets. Like, you know, like you have that amazing, like, uh, like the cliffs scene, but that's also, you know, I feel like people are more willing to do stunts when they're on sets and they're like, oh, that's going to, that you're going to fall. You're going to get hurt. You're going to do all this sort of stuff. But yeah, yeah. Carrie always sent to the hospital because Christopher Guest hit him so hard. Yeah. And like actually thinking even of that cliff scene, it, it was of course, because like under the giant could in no way carry like three people up a mountain at all, not yeah. even pretend to. Um, but, you know, he's kind of climbing like he's in a wuxia film, like it's Crouching Tiger, mm-hmm. Hidden Dragon or something like that. Yeah. And I don't know if that was on purpose. Like if they were thinking, like if Ron, if Rob Reiner was like, I love wuxia films. If he's just going to climb up this thing, let's make it look like really lightweight and funny. Or if it's just a little bit of a clumsy stunt. I don't know. I feel like I, it has a little bit of a Batman, again, Batman the TV series element to it. There's like some, again, these are larger, I don't know, maybe you're right. I, 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 
For whatever reason, I don't think that that's where Rob Reiner's mind was with the Wuxia films. But maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Can somebody listen to a commentary track and let us know. Maybe not, because I think the one beat of action in this movie that I don't love it is actually in that sword fight when Carrie yeah. always does like a flip on the parallel bars and then lands. They know the little flip he does. I think I feel like that flip is the one moment that goes a little bit too hot shots in this film. We're talking about this movie that is, I mean, it is a legend, right? It's a legend. It's a big film. I think one of the things about it was that it wasn't really a big film or as influential as we think when it f- comes out either, right? It's a, This is not a hit at the box office. It's a modest hit. Yeah, but it it has one of the worst trailers. Worst trailers when it comes out. So bad they actually pulled it. Have you seen the first trailer for The Princess Bride? No. Oh, it is bad. I want you to not even think about how they take the funny lines, use them all, make it out of context, make them, un- make them unfunny. Listen to the music in the background. It was a time when life didn't seem so complicated. Marriage is what brings us together today. What? 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 I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice? There were affairs of state. But I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilda to frame for it. I'm swamped. And affairs of the heart. My Wesley will always come for me. Your Wesley is dead. I've seen worse. Bye-bye, boy! Have fun storming the castle! It's more than dirty. What's the difference? We've got him. I mean, it's really bad. I mean, that's raising Arizona bad. It might even be worse. It, this, huh. Yeah, I it mean, might right. even be worse. But yeah, it did not do well, I think, in that element. Like, how do you sell a movie like this that operates with such sincerity without making a trailer that I think is making fun of it? Like, the trailer feels like it's making fun of what this movie is. It, the trailer does not get the tone. Well, I mean, I also feel like the poster never got the tone. I remember the poster as a kid. as like, you can't even really tell what's going on. It's it's It looked too kid-like. Um, and I remember when I got the book, yeah. the paperback book, the paperback book was just a picture of like Wesley, like cradling uh, Robin Wright. And it was like, it just lost everything. There's been so many fan prints and so many amazing like Mondo art for it that have done such a better service to the film. Yeah. But you're right. This is a movie that was marketed poorly, terribly, I would say. Yeah. It was marketed insecurely. Like it didn't believe in it. I mean, I think even one of the first posters was just like Fred Savage and Peter Falk. You know, in silhouette. In silhouette. And it's like, what? That's what? You know, it yeah. didn't even show you any of the characters. It didn't even show you like the character characters, the people who like no, make it was, what it is. That's what I was like. And I think when it comes out on video, like on, you know, on VHS, people find it because it's like there's just a, you know, I think they went from silhouette of Peter Falcon and Fred Savage to silhouette of Carrie Elway's and uh, and Robin Wright. But it never captures the tone. Like, and then there's finally, like, I remember, like, at a certain point, another poster that then shows swords and other characters and a little bit more daring. Like, it, they kept on, like, finding it, finding it, finding it, finding it, finding it. And then I think as that kind of continued to build, people found it and loved it and talked about it. Because it was a movie that was a more word of mouth film, I think. Yeah. I mean, you're actually right. Like, because there is so much movie in this movie, like, how do you sell it? And it's funny because then... You know, Rob Reiner will talk about like how as he's gone through his life since then, the people who will come up to him or Carrie Elways and say that they love it are just like crazy. You know, like 
Bill Clinton right. apparently has seen this movie a hundred times. Like, but this is also like Ted Cruz's favorite movie, which has caused like a lot of like kerfuffles on Twitter. You know, mm-hmm. I, there have been like major fights between like Carrie Owens and Ted Cruz over like who gets to love this film more on Twitter. Uh, actually, even at one point, Mandy Patinkin uh, said like, I think this is when Cruz was running for president the first time. This man is not putting forth ideas that are at the heart of what this movie is all about. And I would love for Senator Cruz and everyone creating fear mongering and hatred to consider creating hope, optimism and love. But everybody's fighting over who gets to right. love this movie most. I mean, Pope John Paul loved this movie like Pope John wow. Paul met Carrie Elways and lost it. He was like, you're the actor, the one from The Princess and the Bride. Uh, he called it The Princess and the Bride. He's the Pope. He can do what he wants. He's fallible. Um, but yeah, like how that range. I think I was bagging on Four Quadrant films a little bit the other day, you know, just like mm-hmm. when you aspire to them in a way that feels like they're for nobody. But this right. is this is a Four Quadrant that actually works. Everybody has something to love in this film. Well, I think a four-quadrant film is not intentionally made to be four-quadrant. I think when you go and decide that you're going to make a four-quadrant film is when you make a movie that can kind of fall on its face. When you just try to tell a good story that happens to engage everybody else, it works. Like, I, don't think this is, I don't think that this was made to be like, we need to bring everybody in. And, but yet it does. I mean, but now, I guess what we're saying is, if you could get past the marketing, you're going to like this film. Is that true for the critics? Not exactly. Like, critics liked it, but it was a bit of half-hearted passion. You know, I just took a couple sentences from a few critics. Like, the Globe and Mail said, Rob Reiner's not up to it. When the movie is meant to be romantic, the tone is frequently mushy and sexless. And when it's meant to be anachronistic and satiric, it is vaudeville vulgar. And Pauline Kael, she said it had loose, likable sloppiness. Um, but that Rob Reiner doesn't have the craft to bring off this kinetic daredevil tree he tries for, and the movie is ungainly. You can almost see the chalk marks it's not hitting. And then Variety said that Carrie Elways and Robin Wright as the loving couple are nearly comatose and inspire little passion from each other or the audience. It's interesting. It's really interesting. And 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 I feel like, again, when you find a movie that has become a... I wouldn't say it's a cult hit, because I think this is like a movie that in many ways, you know, spawned board games and posters and like we said revivals and books and you know redos not redos but like tributes um tributes it's to working. tiffany and common do you see the one tiffany yes, common doing this movie on quibi very emotional time for buttercup but i fear i'll never see you again of course you will but what if something happens to you hear this now i will always come for you but how can you be so sure this is true love you think this happens every day? Wesley didn't reach his destination. His ship was attacked by the dread pirate Roberts, who never left captives alive. When Buttercup got the news that Wesley was murdered... Murdered by pirates is good. She went into her room and shut the door, and for days, she neither slept nor ate. There's a love for this film, but... Why didn't they see it then? Maybe because it seems like a movie easy to get. So I don't understand why you wouldn't, but I don't know. I think we're naturally resistant to sincerity. Mm. I think the first time we come across something this earnest, we keep a foot out. You know, like right. we don't want to give ourselves over to it because we're all Fred Savage. Right. You, you know, I think you have to. Do what you did while watching Requiem for a Dream and accept the movie on its own and try to meet it where it is. 
And yeah. I think a movie like this is hard to do that the first time if you don't know what it is. And also, I mean, this is a movie that's a story about storytelling that tells you to be not just okay with cliche, but like love cliche. The princess will, I keep calling her princess even though she's not a prince, but the two people in love will find each other and vengeance will be served and the and the villains will be punished. And it just tells you up front, like, you want that story. Like, you might say you don't want that story, but if you don't get it, you're going to be like Fred Savage grumbling about it, you know? Right. And we're going to give it to you. It, it's like, I guess every critic really was Fred Savage. Yeah. I mean, you're, <laughs> I guess you're right. And even, but, you know, time has shown that they were wrong and they should have just sat back and, and watched the film, um, which I guess then brings us to the case of, would we send this up in space to the aliens? I, I'll go first because I always feel like I put you on the spot to go first. And you always oh, have a thank you. A, a, it's terrible. Um, I would say this is probably the film that has the like the easiest path to get on the list of a hundred because, like Wizard of Oz. I think there's something really universal about it, right? It lasted for a long time. It's done its it's done its duty as far as existing in our world, people responding to it. It talks about themes. Um, is it like the perfect story about a couple or a romance? No, it, but it's a great love story and it's a fantastical love story. And, um, and I don't know why I keep on making this comparison, but Wizard of Oz and, and Princess Bride feel to me like sister films. Like they feel like, okay, we're talking in this thing. We're doing some bigger things, but we're also keeping in this kind of fantasy world. And in a, in a show that we've done for quite some time now, there are so few of these that we talk about, like light, airy, fun, great performances. Um, like what I say, the, the directing of this is amazing. Like... Not like visually, it's not a visually like blow me away movie. The performances are great, the yeah. but the style of directing is great and the casting is great. So it's like it's a different style. So in that way, I don't I don't want to just rubber stamp it at this one moment, but it 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 seems to me like the easiest no brainer to be like, yeah, this one kind of goes on that list. You know, I think Wizard of Oz is a much better comparison even than. Than the one that I was making earlier about It's a Wonderful Life. Because you're right. Like, even Wonder Wizard of Oz had a little bit of eye rolling. People thought it was, like, ripping off Snow White when it came right. out. And it wasn't beloved for a while. And, you know, there are actually, I think, moments in this film where Rob Reiner is reaching for poetry. Like, I get really moved in the scene where Robin Wright jumps out of the window at the end and Andre the Giant catches her. And you have that moment of yeah. her kind of rippling through the air with just the black behind her. And she just looks otherworldly. What I kind of feel about The Princess Bride is, you know, when somebody asked me, like, what would be the movie that I would take to a desert island? Mm -hmm. And The Princess Bride, I would not say is my number one favorite movie or my number two. But my number one and number two favorite movies are a little bit depressing. I think they're beautiful, but they're a little bit depressing. And I think if you destroyed every movie on this planet, but you kept... The, print, the Princess Bride, you would see everything the movies could have done. You know, you would see every bit of genre that we were good at in this film. Right. I think it's just, to me, The Princess Bride, it is an everything movie. Just every mood that you could possibly want is in this film. Every emotion you want to feel is in this film. Like it just does it. It comes in and in 97 minutes, it is all. It is all right. things that I would want from a movie. And if I could only ever have one movie for the rest of my life, 
it might be this. It actually might be Wizard of Oz. There's a really good point for that too. Right. But if, if I could only ever have one movie to watch that I would never get tired of, that I would have satisfy every itch, this could be that one. This really could. You know, I think that's why I was talking so much to myself earlier uh, about like the horror that's in this film and the tragedy that's in this film, because it has those things. It has weight to it. Yeah, it definitely, definitely does. Um and I'm trying so hard not to just be sucked away by the fact that this is like my generation, you know? Well, that's a tricky but, thing too, but it's not our generation when this movie is engaging kids and people to this day. And I think that there there are very few films that do that, um, that have a staying power. And you have to like, I think we have to look at those films and this is like the populist in me, which is like, which I boldly embrace, by the way, um, like... Staying power is important on this list, you know, mm-hmm. because there's there's something there's something about like everyone likes this, like everyone likes this, and that's not a bad thing. Like, um, very few movies do. Can you agree upon like The Godfather? Everyone likes. Now, look, we disagreed with Shawshank, but you know, if we're if we're trying to be more open minded, you'd have to be like, oh well, you know, maybe we don't get it, but for the good of the people, that has to go in the box, you know, like. Yeah. Um, Although you but know, what? I, fuck a Shawshank. We kicked it off, and I'm putting the Princess Bride. Uh, oh yeah, Done. I'm just no, kidding. but I mean, look, I'd be, I'd be down with that too. But it, this is the thing that is the most shocking about this film is that it's not already on the AFI list. Personally, yeah. it feels to me like that was an AFI li- that, like, really. Wow. I mean, um, like you could make a case like, oh, well, Harry Mattel, I, I believe Harry Mattel should be on the list too. I, I like it so much. These movies are defining movies for me. They're movies I've lived with for a long time. But um, this movie in the place that it is has sustained to this day. Whereas Harry Met Sally, I don't know how many people are going back and watching it. I think when we did our podcast on it, so many people were like, oh, I just watched it for the first time. It's great. It works. But it's not in our zeitgeist. It's not in our, it's in, and in that way, if we're going like one Rob Reiner, I mean, then you'd have to put Spinal Tap into the equation too. But, um, but there's something about, I don't know, this one. I think I would pick this one over Spinal Tap. Wow, that's a crazy statement. But I think I would, <laughs> I, 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 wow, it's a lot. It's a lot. I haven't really thought that one through, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit on that. But uh, right now, this probably jumps to the top of the line for what goes on the list. Yeah. Well, now I want to hear a new version of that argument. I mean, I think I've heard the argument 90 trillion times, like, you can't just have one Kubrick film. You can't just Mm -hmm. have one Spielberg film. And I have never heard anybody say you can't just have one Rob Reiner film. You know what? But by the way, look at his fucking body of work. Look at his fucking body of work. Why aren't we talking about him in the same breadth? We we should be. Mm -hmm. And, and And that's the tricky thing. And I think that that's all ultimately goes back to, uh, I think that people assume Rob Reiner is a comedy director. And he is kind of, but A Few Good Men is not a comedy. Uh, Misery is not a comedy. You know, uh, American President is not a comedy. Not that that American President should be in that conversation, but like, you know, like, but these are movies. He's a very, very director who's made, you know, Spinal Tap is not Harry Met Sally and Spinal Tap and, and, and Princess Bride is not A Few Good Men. Like his, that first break is more varied or as varied as the Coen brothers or as Kubrick. Now, after that, after American president, mm, we're not getting those movies, uh, that same level of film. But, you know, but if anyone could have that kind of a run, I, I, you know, that's a good run. Would you take that run? I mean, would you take, you know, it's hard to say many people have beaten that run, you know, like I would say Capra had that, had that run. Preston Sturgis had that run. 
Spielberg had that run, but it is a limited, loot is a limited run. I mean, I'm going to even put in there, like, uh, the sure thing is also, like, I would, that I think is solid too. So it's one, two, three. So it's Spinal Tap, Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, North, and American <laughs> President. Like, that is really good. That is good. You cannot hate on that. I think the Spinal Tapness of it is maybe what made some of the critics at the day be like, it can't be that good. Like, he's a comedy guy. Like, they weren't expecting sincerity in this film. You yeah. know, I think that Spinal Tap cast a shadow that made it hard for people to see this film at the time. Maybe. 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 But All right. Well, it's yeah. good. It's a good movie. Well, Amy, we are seeing goodbye to couples, but we are going to gear up for some real world tales. Um, we are starting a brand new series of something that we really haven't covered that much on the show. Sports films, but not just any sports films. These are sports films that are based in real life. All right. These are, you know, dramatizations of real people. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this this idea because it's like there's so many great sports films, but I like looking at it through this lens. Like who are, you know, who are the stories that we're telling? Not just the fictional ball player comes out and hits the home run. These are the people who actually did it. Yeah. And some failed and some succeeded. There are real heroes and real struggles in sports. I always I'm always surprised when people feel like you have to decide between being a jock lover and an art lover. I'm like, oh, if you like stories, just get into the history of a team. Get into like yeah. the history of the people. Like if you're into soap opera, if you're into like that epic narratives, if you like the Odyssey, let me tell you about the Lakers. <laughs> uh, believe me. Uh, yeah. You want to watch something about defeat, read The Curse, the book about the Clippers. Um, all right. So we're starting <laughs> off uh, keeping our love of basketball at the top of mind with Hoosiers. Um, Gene Hackman. Uh, based on a true story, and take a listen to the trailer. These six individuals have made the choice to work, the choice to sacrifice, put themselves on the line, represent you, this high school. This is your team. Hoosiers. They needed a second chance to finish first. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the championship game. You're not the new coach. Are you expecting somebody different? <laughs> Younger. Both incredible and improbable confrontation. Well, those of you who don't know, my name is Norman Dale. I coached college ball for 10 years, but it's been 12 years since I've blown this. In the illustrious history of the Indiana High School basketball tournament. That's a hell of a team you had there. You knew that team? I know everything there is to know about the greatest game ever invented. With a pint size hardly big enough for three syllables, Hickory Huskers enrollment 64. Out of here. Right now. You kicking me out? Yes. Don't come back until you learn to keep your mouth shut and listen. Take on the defending state champions, the Mighty Bears of South Bend Central. Run you off the boards. You got to squeeze them back in the paint. Make them chuck it from the cheap seats. Now, we are going to reveal the whole lineup of this at the top of next week's show, or also on our Twitch stream, where we're going to be talking about our romantic comedy films and then previewing what is to come. Uh, but we, of course, are going to welcome another audience pick, since you guys nailed it, this issue with the Princess Bride. I'm looking forward to it. You guys have set a high bar. So uh, let's see what you bring. All right. Um, well, I'll see you next week, Amy. All right. I'll see you first. 